Good morning. Uh, this morning we're going to be going through Exodus, 30, Exodus 3 uh, verses 1 through 14 and we're going to be dealing with the burning bush and the issue of God's holiness. And what we're doing is we're going through uh, a series of sermons on God's character and most of the series is going to come out of Exodus 34 verses 4 through 7. And last week uh, Pak Yusuf spoke on God's sovereignty. But although that passage lists a lot of the characteristics of God that we want to touch on, uh, God's holiness, which is taught all throughout Scripture, but really strongly in Exodus, wasn't contained in that passage. So we're going back to chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. And as we look at this, you know, God's holiness is really one of those, those characteristics that if we don't get this one right, it's really hard to interpret the rest of Scripture. Both Old and New Testament, God's holiness is, is, uh, is a really strong aspect of what he's uh, trying to convey to us. And so in order to interpret Scripture correctly, and, and in fact, and in order to apply Scripture correctly to our, our lives, we really need to understand this aspect of God's character, His holiness. So when we look at God's holiness in Scripture, what we see is that God is the Creator. He is utterly unique, and He is morally pure. Those are the things that Scripture says about God and His holiness. But the, the other part of that is we as humans, in our natural state, are creatures. We are not unique like God is. Uh, he is unique in that He is the Creator, but we are creatures. We are morally impure. From the time that Adam and Eve picked the, the fruit, ate the fruit, they became morally impure when they rebelled against God. We are also ritually impure, and that means we're polluted by the curse of sin and death. All of creation actually is in some sense ritually impure. And this is a big issue throughout the Old Testament, I know, because uh, we often deal with the New Testament from my understanding of the cross on. We often don't understand this issue of ritual impurity, uh, but that's a big issue and we're going to discuss that a little more. But our understanding of the concept of holiness is crucial to fully grasp what Jesus did on the cross. When we look at God's holiness, God's holiness and glory are often tied together and they're rep often represented by fire. So when God comes to Moses at the burning bush, it's, it's a fire. Uh, later on, when God talks to him on the mountain, there's going to be fire, there's going to be smoke. Uh, when uh, Moses leads the people of Israel out of captivity, they're going to be following what's a pillar of cloud by day, but a pillar of fire by night. And this pillar of fire is going to come down and settle on the tabernacle. And it represents God's presence with humanity, but it also represents the, that, the uh, cleansing fire of God that cleanses impurities. And so a great analogy for this for us is the sun. So for us, the sun in our solar system, it's unique. It's the only one of its kind. And the sun is powerful, it's large, uh, everything revolves around it, and is the source of life on earth in many ways. The energy that it gives is what gives energy to plants. Uh, and then those plants become food for us and food for other animals that we eat. But the sun is really dangerous for us. Let's say you're out in the desert and you're not wearing the proper clothes, you're out there too long, the sun can burn you and it can, it can, it can even kill you if it uh, sucks all the water out of your body, it, you dehydrate, you die. But let's say you're on a, on a uh, spaceship and you decide to go visit the sun. The closer you get, the hotter it gets and, and eventually as you get close to it, it's going to destroy you because the sun is dangerous to us as we get closer to it. In some sense, that's like God's holiness. We are unholy and God is holy. And all throughout scripture, it presents us as when we come into the presence of God in the wrong 
state, uh, ritual impurity, moral impurity, God is actually dangerous to us. His presence can destroy us because we are unholy, entering the presence of a holy God. So from the time of the fallen Adam and Eve, we've all been in this state of unholiness. And Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden uh, because they could no longer be in the presence of a holy God. And Isaiah grasped the significance of God's holiness and his un, his own personal unholiness in Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. And in Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And he knows that he is unholy, that this is a dangerous state. And so the angel actually comes to him with this burning coal and touches his lips and purifies him. It represents that purifying, holy fire of God purifying him. And then he is able to speak the words of God to the people. Another example from this is in in, uh, the Old Testament as well with Aaron's sons uh, who were destroyed at the temple in Korah's rebellion. So as God sets up the temple, as he he sets up the tabernacle, he he gives Moses and Aaron very specific instructions of how to set everything up. And he says, this is a holy place. When you come into this place, you're coming into the, the presence of God and it's holy. And there are certain things you need to do to take care of your ritual unholiness. And there are certain things you're not supposed to do while you're in this temple area or in the the tabernacle area. But Aaron's sons, they come and they change the formula for the incense that they're giving to God. And God has specifically told them not to do this, but they do it anyway. They treat God's holiness lightly. And God's fire comes and destroys them. And it's one of those perplexing um, issues in the Bible. Why did God do this for, for people who were his priests who were supposed to be worshiping him? But the same thing happens with uh, a story called Korah's Rebellion, where one of the leaders of Israel, he basically leads a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And he says, why are you the only ones that can come into God's presence? We are holy too. We can also come into that presence. And so they bring their own incense and they're burning incense before the tabernacle and God's fire comes and destroys them again. And in Leviticus 10, Verse 3, it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And in some, uh, some translations it says, I will be held holy, or I will be made holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. God is basically saying, you can't just do whatever you want in my presence. There are some things I'm telling you you should do in order to come into my presence. And he's really serious about these things. Uh, in Romans 3.23, it says, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's talking about our unholiness. It's this huge standard that we can't reach. We don't don't meet God's standard of holiness or moral purity. We We deserve death. We deserve to be destroyed. And we do not deserve to be allowed to enter into God's holy presence. 
I have a friend, his name's Peter Stillman. He uh, always taught this great analogy about, he called it the toilet water analogy. So basically you have a toilet, right? Everybody has a toilet in their house. And you go and you get a little water dropper and you take one little drop out of this toilet and you have this clean glass of water. And you drop that, you drop just one drop from the toilet into your glass. Would you drink it? Well, of course we wouldn't because we know that that would make us sick. It's now impure. That glass of water is impure. And that glass of water represents our life, our good works, everything. Uh, the, the drop of water represents sin. That one, just Adam and Eve, that one sin of eating that fruit made them unholy. But let's say you have a pitcher of water, a big pitcher of water, or maybe in one of those igloo, um, one of those, uh, those uh, what do you call those things, those igloo uh, ice chests, and you fill it full of water, and you then dump that cup of water that you just, just one little drop of toilet water, you dump that cup of water into it, and then you refill your glass from the, the igloo thermos. So would you drink from that cup now? It's got a lot of uh, better water mixed in, pure water, uh, but it still has that one little drop that's now mixed into a lot more water. Well, that's like us mixing in good works in our lives. We think that if we just do enough good works, we can overcome that, that, that small amount of sin that we think is in our lives. But if we drink that cup, we're going to get sick. It's still contaminated. That's our lives. Just one sin contaminates us, and we have committed many, many sins. So we stand condemned we stand impure in God's presence so in the Old Testament what they would do is they would sacrifice an animal they would put their hands on the head of an animal they would this animal had to be pure they would confess their sins they would they would kill this animal and then that blood would be shed the innocent for the guilty and that could cover sin it would also cover ritual impurity what they would do with this blood is they would take a branch it was called a hyssop branch from the hyssop tree and they would dip the blood, they would have a bowl of blood that they had caught from the, the sacrifice. They would dip this branch in it and they would fling, the, the priest would fling blood onto you or onto other objects around the temple. And then those things were considered holy. If the sacrifice was made uh, on behalf of the person to God, then these things that were sprinkled in that blood were then holy, separated for God. And so that's the way that the Old Testament handles sin and um, the issue of ritual impurity. It didn't really deal at that point with our internal moral impurity. It was more of a, of a sign of what Christ would do on the cross for us. But it was meant as a visual representation of what was happening inside of us. And basically the curse of the curse that's come upon all the earth, you know, all these objects like the, the, um, the, the all the things at the tabernacle, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the altar, the um, altar of incense, uh, all these things were sprinkled with blood to make them holy to the Lord. Well, now we're going to go to Exodus 3, 1 through 14 and deal with the burning bush. So uh, beginning with verse 1, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he held his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Havites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So we see here that uh, in verse 2, it says, God came to the angel of the Lord, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. God would often often reveal himself as this flame. It's beautiful. It's dangerous. It's um, it's cleansing uh, if it if it is used in the right way. So he appears to Moses in this flame to to help Moses understand that God is holy. And then in verse two later on he says, um, "Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground." So in Southeast Asia, we when we go into a house or someplace special, we all take our shoes off, right? Now that doesn't make us morally pure. It doesn't change our hearts, but it's a sign of respect to those uh, to the owner of the home. And in this sense, God is telling Moses, "You need to show me proper respect when you come into my presence." And this is not changing Moses' heart as far as uh, you know covering any of his sins or any of that. But it's just Moses showing that he acknowledges his own unholiness and the, the holiness of God and the, his need to show God the respect that's due him. And it goes on to say, um, as, well, the angel of the Lord appeared. And personally, when I hear the angel of the Lord uh, in verse 2, uh, I'm always thinking of theophanies, that God is in some way revealing himself in the flesh to, to us through the Old Testament. Uh, so it says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of the midst of the, of the bush. Uh, and in verse 6 it says, and, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Because in the Old Testament they believed that they saw God's face because they were unholy and God was holy. They would totally be wiped out. They would totally be destroyed. So Moses, he's realizing this is God's presence. I'm in God's presence with this burning bush and he hides his face as a show of respect to God. And in verse 13 and 14, it says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is your name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you to me, has sent me to you. So the interesting thing about this, this, this word, I am, Yahweh, 
In Hebrew, it actually means I was that I was, I am that I am, and I will be what I will be. And it was considered to be such a holy name. It was the, there were lots of names given to God throughout the Old Testament. But this name was unique. It was separate. It was the most holy of all God's names. It was so holy that it wouldn't be spoken. When they would read it in the scriptures, if they read it on a, on a Sabbath day in, in their um, synagogue, they would not pronounce the name of God. They would not pronounce Yahweh. Instead, they would say Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. So they would switch that out. And in Greek, this word is actually ego emi, uh, which translates I am. So when the, the um, Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, then that word was translated into ego emi. And so that's important because later on, Jesus is going to use this for himself to basically say, I am Yahweh. So as uh, God reveals his holiness to Moses, then he begins to re reveal the purpose why he has come there that day to speak with Moses. In verses 7 through 8, it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God is holy, he's righteous, he's separate, he's unique, but God is also loving, he's merciful, um, he's gracious towards sinners. And so as God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush as holy and separated and set apart, he then goes on to say he wants to save the Israelites and to make them a holy nation, to make them his people, his special people set apart for the task that he's going to give them to bring salvation to the nations. And so as we look at God's holiness, we always need to remember it's tied in with his love and his mercy and his grace and that God wants us to be in his presence. He wants to make a way forward for us to be in that presence. Later on in the story of the Exodus, um, there, Moses does what God says. He goes to Egypt. He brings the people out and they are a people holy, set apart for God. There's this cloud of uh, this is cloud by day and fire by night that they, they follow as they go out into the wilderness, but they grumble and they complain. Um, their lives do not represent uh, some kind of reflection of God's holiness, but it actually represents somewhat the, the, the worst of mankind. And in Numbers 20, uh, so twice, Moses, uh, they're out in the desert and the people are complaining about no water. And they're not asking God for water, they're just complaining. And God tells Moses to give them water out of a rock. And the first time is Exodus 17, and God tells Moses, strike the rock, and the water's going to come out. And so Moses does this. He strikes water, the water comes out, and the people drink. But then in Numbers 20, God tells Moses, just say to the rock, give water, and, and the water will come out. But Moses is angry. He's frustrated. He's been with these people for a long time. They've been looking to him as, in some sense, their savior. Um, they've been looking to him as the, the hero of the story. And uh, so they're putting a lot of pressure on Moses. And he says to them, must I give you water from the rock again? And he strikes the rock and the water comes out. But in verse 12 of Numbers 20, it says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to uphold me as holy, in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring the assembly into the land that I have given them. So Moses um, has kind of taken the place of God. He's acting like he's giving them water. And God says, 
that's not the way it is. You have not lifted me up as holy in front of the people. And so you will no longer be able to lead them into the promised land. Instead, Joshua ends up leading them into the promised land. So Moses and Aaron die in the wilderness along with uh, the people who refuse to enter the promised land. And then their children go in. But this is where we make a pivot to the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5, it talks about uh, the the life that the Israelites lived out in the desert, God bringing them out of Israel and bringing them out of Egypt and into the promised land. It says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, and he's talking to believers here, that our fathers, and, and he's talking to a, a, a Hebrew audience, he's saying, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. Talk about the manna that God provided for them. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So he's basically saying this, this whole thing with Moses bringing them out of Israel, this, this uh, cloud, this rock, it's representative of Christ. Christ giving them the living water, that fire going before them, Christ being present with them, leading them. But they did not respond in repentance. They did not respond in humility. Instead, they grumbled, they complained. And God didn't let them enter the promised land. I think it's a warning for us as believers. And so we're going to, as we apply these concepts of holiness to the gospel, we want to look a little bit now at the life of Christ. So in the book of John, uh, the gospel of John, all four gospels speak of Jesus is holy as God is holy. Uh, but in John, he uses this, uh, this phrase, ego emi, uh, the I am phrase that he uses for God back in the Old Testament. And Jesus says of himself multiple times, Ego I, I am the bread of life. I am the doorway. I am uh, the great shepherd. Uh, he uses all these things for himself, basically associating himself with Yahweh, God. And then very explicitly in John 8, 58, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, they're really pressing Jesus about who he is and what he's supposed to be doing. And Jesus finally says, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews immediately knew that he was associating himself with Yahweh. They pick up stones to stone him because they believe he is blasphemed. He, he, being a man, has made himself equal with God. And Jesus doesn't deny it. He, he says, yeah, that's basically what I'm doing. And he continues to express that, that he himself is Yahweh. So as Jesus goes throughout his ministry, he comes upon people who are unclean in some way. And so when we, we think of ritual impurity, most of these ritual impurities in the Old Testament were dealing with disease and death. You weren't supposed to touch someone who was sick. Uh, if they had a blood discharge or they had a skin disease or they had any kind of illness, you weren't supposed to touch them or you would be unclean. You would be, uh, you would be ritually impure and you couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't be in the presence of God. Um, and so Jesus, as he goes along, He's, people who are, have these illnesses, they're supposed to cry out, unclean, unclean, stay away from me. I'm unholy. I will make you unclean. But Jesus, as he encounters these people, he touches them. And instead of him becoming unclean, they become clean. They become, in a sense, holy, ritually pure. And then they're able to interact in society again in a normal way and go to the temple and interact in a normal way. So as, as we move on and Jesus is crucified, it's at the cross where God communicates most clearly the compatibility of love, mercy, and grace with his holiness, righteousness, and justice. 
In Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So it's as if Jesus has sprinkled us with his blood and we've been made holy, set apart for God. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So Jesus is handling our issue of ritual uncleanliness. He's sprinkling us with his blood, setting us apart for God. But then there's supposed to be a change in us morally, that we are supposed to have a, a clean heart with a clean conscience that now wants to walk and obey and do all the things we did not desire to do before but all the things God has always desired us to do to live out that life of purity. We cannot be saved by our good works, but if we are saved, good works should flow out of our lives. It's like that cup of water. You know, we have that cup of water that's now got the, the one drop of impurity in it. Through, Christ, through Christ's blood, it's like, you know, if you're going on a hike and you, you're out of water, what do you do? You, you have uh, some kind of a, of a cup or something. You get water out of a stream. You know it's impure. You know it's going to make you sick. But if you're carrying one of those little tablets, those purification tablets, you drop it in and it does away with all the, the impurities. It makes it safe for you to drink again. And in some sense, that's what Christ did on the cross for us. He's, his blood is the purification tablet dropped into our little cup. We are now pure and we can enter the presence of God. I, I really like the, the analogy of the bridge. A lot of times when I'm sharing the gospel with someone or I'm just talking through the gospel with someone, I'll, I'll use this little picture that you can draw. And it's basically, you know, it's us on one side and God on another. And there's this big gap in between. And that represents spiritual death. And Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. And Isaiah 59.2 says, we all are separated from God because of our sin. We are unholy. God who is holy is over here. We who are unholy over here. And spiritual death is that separation from God. We cannot enter his presence. But many times we try to bridge that gap to make ourselves holy by doing good works or by religion or philosophy, science, education. We, we feel like we can kind of fix our problems and, and make ourselves right with God, but those things don't work. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, no good work can save us or make us in any way holy. That, these, that we are like filthy rags, our righteousness, all these good things we try to do, they're like filthy rags before God. So we can't enter the presence of the king in these filthy rags. And in Romans 6, 23, it says the price of sin, unholiness, is physical and spiritual death. So it's not just that separation from God, but that we physically die because of these sins we have committed but that God wanted to make a way for us to solve these issues. And so through the cross, through his son, he's provided that pathway. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so through the cross, God made that pathway to bridge that gap so that we who are unholy, through the sprinkling of that blood and through the cross, can have a bridge to enter into God's presence, God's holiness again. That's what God wants for us. So we as followers of Christ are called, if we have truly believed in Christ, we've accepted um, his holiness on our behalf through his righteous deeds. We are called to walk in holiness and moral purity as a response to God's holiness and to Christ's sacrifice on our, our behalf. 
1 Peter 1, 14-21 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy. So because God's character is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that's, that's referencing an Old, Test, uh, Old Testament passage. So it was always expected in the Old Testament as well that if we had been made holy by God, that we would then walk in holiness in our conduct. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. That's that reverence we're supposed to give to God. Throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in this last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. God is the hero of our story here. You know, even in the Exodus, it wasn't Moses, it was always God. God who is holy provided a pathway for us to take care of our, our problem, our ritual impurity, our moral impurity, but then he expects us to walk in a different way. And, and when, we are, when we become a believer, God transforms us supernaturally through his Holy Spirit so that we want to walk in this way. So if you've never had that desire, you feel like you've, you believe Jesus is who he said he is, and you want to have him as your savior, but you've never felt a desire to change your life and to become like him and to walk in the ways that he has told us we need to walk, it's, it's time to examine your your your, your um, it's time to examine if you really know him because he's saying, if you know me, you're going to want to do these things. You're going to walk in this way. And he's calling us to a life of holiness. As I was going through the sermon this week, I started reexamining my life. I started thinking through um, the way I treat my neighbors, the, the time I spend with God. Do I, do I set aside a time for God? Is my life set aside for God? Am, am I truly following after him and making his kingdom my primary purpose in life? Um, do I spend time each day really seeking to be in God's presence. You know, if I'm to be his, be holy for him, I should be um, wanting to be in his presence often. And I started thinking through the, you know, I, I read news a lot. And I started thinking through the news sites I go to and several of them that I go to, they have things that are very inappropriate that show up all the time. And I started thinking, I just can't do that anymore. It, that's, it's not a reasonable, um, if I am truly to be set aside for Christ, I can't be going to these websites, but also being tempted by these things that are very unholy, very against what I believe. Um, there are better ways to spend my time and I can find my news elsewhere, although I really love those websites. I was just thinking of, through the, the movies we watch and, and the music we listen to, are these things good? Are they holy? Are they pure? Should I be spending my time there? Uh, and I had to reevaluate. And I think all throughout our lives as we seek to live this life that is holy, we need to be reevaluating re how our relationship is with God, how our relationship is with our neighbors, how our relationship is with what we entertain ourselves with, or even how we get our information from different places. And it's we're in a changing world all the time, and we're always having to reevaluate that. I find myself always having to humbly repent and have new habits, form new habits of walking in holiness. And I don't always do a good job. I'm just being honest. Uh, and I know that many of you out there struggle with the same things. I want to be holy and I want to walk in holiness, but it's tough in this life. Um, we are bombarded by so many things that are unholy. 
But we are called to walk in that holiness. And those who struggle is something we have to fight for, something we have to do. And always re-examining our lives, always repenting, and always changing what we do. So in in application, where do you stand with God? Has he made you holy through Christ? Um, If you're trying to stand before God holy in your own inadequate righteousness, it's not going to work. You need the righteousness of Christ. You need to trust in him to sprinkle you with his blood to make you holy. But in that process, he says he's going to change us and that he's going to help us to walk in holiness. So are you doing that? Are you seeking that personal holiness with him? I hope that you are. And, and I know it's, it's not a one and done kind of battle. It's a battle we fight all of our lives. But we do it because God is holy. He's worthy of that effort, that battle that we fight. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are holy, that you have... As a holy God, you humbled yourself, you became a man, you died on the cross for our sins, and you provided a way for us to receive salvation just as you provided a way for the Israelites out of the land of Egypt into the promised land. We want to walk into that promised land, people holy in your sight, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, people walking and dedicating our lives to you, Lord. So as we go throughout the next few weeks, I pray that you would change our lives, that we would continually be re-examining our lives in light of your holiness, in light of your character, so that we are more like you. Lord, we need that supernatural changing of our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Make us holy. Make us aware of the things that we do that keep us from being able to really be in your presence. And we love you, Lord, and we thank you for what you have done in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.